0: some denominations do it once a quarter some do it once a week but the purpose given in scripture is to do it often and the purpose is to remember and that therefore the focus is on our own concentration to be able to think through The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ with special reference to what he has done for each one of us. Therefore, the Lord's table is designed not as some empty ritual, some religious activity that people engage in, but it is designed for a person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have put your faith alone in Christ alone, then there is reality to this ritual. There is significance and meaning to this ritual. For in eating the bread and drinking the cup, you are, in effect, saying through the symbols of the Lord's table that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The act of eating and drinking is an act that anyone can engage in. And therefore, like faith, it is something that anyone can do. And faith is something that anyone can do. So when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, it is, as it were, accepting Jesus into your life. In fact, that terminology to receive Christ and to accept him is terminology used in the scripture that is synonymous with faith. Faith means to put your trust Your reliance upon someone. The elements of the Lord's table picture the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread is unleavened bread. It goes back to the Passover meal. And the purpose for eating unleavened bread at the Passover was because they were in a hurry. God was about to deliver them from their slavery in Egypt, and so they were not to take the time to leaven the bread but it had a deeper significance, and that is that it represents the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. The bread represents his body. The fact that it is unleavened represents the fact that he was sinless. He was born of a virgin. Therefore, he did not inherit a sin nature from Adam through His through Joseph because he did not have a biological human father. Therefore, there was no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. So he was born without inherent sin or imputed sin, and he lived his life with no personal sin. As a result, he was perfectly qualified to go to the cross and there to die as a substitute for us. So the bread represents his body, his qualifications, his person. The cup represents his work. The red grape juice, which was originally red wine, was a picture of shed blood. It is not the physical shedding of blood that pays for sin because the penalty for sin was not physical death but spiritual death. So the shedding of blood itself was a picture, a, an analogy, a visual uh, training aid to understand what was taking place within the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, that Jesus Christ's physical death is a picture of what was taking place spiritually when he was separated from God the Father judicially when the sins of all mankind were poured out upon him during those three hours on the cross from noon to 3 p.m. when the cross was covered by a supernatural darkness, at which time Jesus cried out and recited the 22nd Psalm and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord's Table is designed for anyone who is a believer. The Lord's table is not restricted by church membership. And the Lord's table is your opportunity to focus and to concentrate and to remember what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. We are all equal recipients of grace. During this time, we also want to make sure that we are adequately prepared. And the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that they were suffering various categories of divine discipline because they approached the Lord's table in an inappropriate manner, treated it lightly and superficially, and it is therefore important for us to examine ourselves, which is simply another way of saying to uh, confess your sins, make sure that you have uh, confessed your sins, that you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to partake. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer during which time the men will come forward, and I will ask Cantivage then to return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. As our Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he came to a portion of the meal where he took the bread, the unleavened bread, and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Ernie Dillon if he would please return thanks for the cup. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. After the meal, Jesus took the third cup, called the cup of redemption, and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together in sing hymn number 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to uh, open in a word of prayer. We already should be in fellowship since we just had the Lord's table, so I will just open in prayer. Let's pray. my Father, again, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have as believers to gather together in this nation under freedom, freedom to teach your word unhindered by opposition from the federal government or law. Father, we realize that we live in a day of culture war. We live in a day when the forces of evil are arrayed against us, and they have the church, and they have Bible doctrine in their crosshairs. And it is their goal, it's their purpose to ultimately do away with the absolute teaching of the Word of God, any teaching that is built on the concept of absolutes, any teaching that emphasizes that there are some things that are right, some things that are wrong. Any teaching that teaches that certain behavior should be uh, excised from the body politic and any behavior that and certain behavior should be kept completely away from society and be considered to be evil. And we have too many people who do not understand the difference between uh, evil in terms of sin sin and the sin nature and evil people. Yet people perform evil every time they commit sin and every single day. Father, we thank you for your grace that provided a perfect solution for every category of sin through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you that uh, we have understood this. We pray that you would challenge us to explain this truth to others. Now, Father, this morning we have a couple of special prayer requests. We pray for Dan while he is down in Atlanta covering for Henry at his church. We pray that you would uh, just uh, enable Dan to relax and teach a good class this week. We also pray for Henry while he is concluding his uh, week at Baraka. We pray that uh, that will go well and that he would clearly teach your word and that his uh, study preparation would be evident. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The challenge against Christianity today is interestingly rearing its head as an assault on Jesus Christ. In the last ten years or so, whether you were aware of all of this or not, you had something that came out of the, of the 1990s called the Jesus Seminar, and that was a group of so-called scholars, mostly secular scholars, who have degrees at so-called respected secular universities, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, a number of other schools, ...who do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. As a matter of fact, their presupposition is that other documents from the early church... ...probably have as much, if not more, authority or information for us than the Bible. And they have made a number of fraudulent claims... But for the most part, most people didn't pay too much attention to the Jesus seminar. These were the folks that met every couple of years, and they would read through the Gospels. And I think they had a five-colored code system where they would color some words. One color to indicate that Jesus could never have said this. Another color would indicate he probably never said this. Another color for possibly he said this. And another color for... for um, Uh, He probably did, and then very few sayings were actually real. And among these scholars were those who believed that a certain number of uh, of pseudepigraphal, now there's probably a new word for many of you, pseudepigrapha, from the uh, Greek word pseuda, meaning false, and grapha, meaning writings, graphae for writings, like the same word for Scripture, pseudepigraphal, means the false writings. See we have the apocryphal books. Those are books that were not included in the canon of the Old Testament. Apocrypha does not refer to anything that wasn't included in the New Testament. Apocryphal books were Old Testament books like uh First and Second, Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, and a couple of other books. Those were included in the Roman Catholic uh Vulgate by Jerome, who translated the Old Testament into Latin, and he included the apocryphal books not because he thought they were canonical, but because they contained good information, and they did. And there's not necessarily bad information there. They're not necessarily heretical, but they're just not scriptural. And uh, eventually the Roman Catholic Church, in uh, reaction to the Protestant Reformation, canonized those books, but they didn't canonize the Apocrypha until after the Protestant Reformation. On the other hand, you had certain New Testament period books written. They weren't written specifically let's say, the New Testament period of the first century, but they were written into the second century, third century, even fourth century, even as late as two or three hundred years after Jesus, and they claimed to be uh, authored by uh, apostles. You know, and that was typical in that age. They would stick somebody's name on it who was famous, and so more people would read it. So you have the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of the Ebionites, which was clearly heretical, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Now, there's a fun one for you. And, yet, yeah, what you see is these these idiotes um, scholars, you know, idiotes means unlearned, so I like that little an oxymoron there, these idiote scholars come along, and they think that these, oh, well, these poor people were just marginalized during the first century, and so we need to give them a hearing. And they treat what was written in the late first century. In fact, the big issue here is on dating. And so what they try to do is date these things as early as possible, and try to get them into the first century so they can treat them as history. But they're not. No reputed scholar accepts their date as anything earlier than 150, and some of these are dated as late as 250 or 300. They're not eyewitness accounts. They're not historical accounts. They were written by a minority position that had been declared heretical by, by the church for many, many decades, and they were just simply trying to do something, anything they could to subvert the authority of the apostles and to uh, somehow validate their own position. But in a postmodern world, anything goes. You know, you have your reality, I have my reality. Let's see what everybody, all the different interpretations of Jesus, and you pick your Jesus and I'll pick my Jesus, and so we'll go. But that is just absurd. It's patently illogical, but then logic never bothered a a postmodernist because they reject logic as a valid category from the get-go. So we live in an age when everybody wants to come up with their own concept of Jesus and go back and find something somewhere by somebody in order to validate their view of Jesus. And all this does is to reduce Jesus to nothing more than a another human. See, in the early church, the problem was, for the most part, his humanity, the Gnostics. And see, most of these Gospels, here's the really weird twist in all this, is most of these Gospels are known as the Gnostic Gospels. And they were found, with a couple of exceptions, they were found in a treasure trove of documents discovered back in the, I believe it was in the 1950s, at a place called Nag Hammadi, in Egypt, which was where there was a Gnostic group in the second and third centuries, and so they thought this would shed light on the early church. Well, it does; it sheds light on who the heretics were. Then shed and the false teachers. It doesn't shed any light on on the truth. But in among the Gnostics, the issue was was Jesus really a man? Did he have true humanity, or did he just appear to be a man? That was Gnosticism, as we studied in the first hour. Due to the impact of Platonism, there was a diminishing of the significance of matter. In fact, matter of the physical world wasn't a good thing, and so God never could incarnate himself in flesh because that would instantly taint him because anything in the real or material world was automatically imperfect. It was less than ideal. So the battle in the early church in many areas was on the humanity of Jesus. And then later, of course, they did have battles over his deity in the sense of how is he related to the Father. Is he eternal Co-eternal with the Father was he created at some point in eternity past. And that view that he was created at some point in eternity past was the view known as Arianism, and that was dealt with at the Council of Nicaea. Now, we've talked about this before. Some of this is new to you. I'm not going to deal with Council of Nicaea for a couple of more weeks, and that is the most important thing to deal with. But now we're dealing with the biblical data. What does the Bible say? And this is important because the attack is... And the assault today is that this concept of Jesus being God is something that was added later on by the church. Oh, they didn't really believe that when Jesus walked the earth. Yes, they did. And my approach, my strategy in this whole series has been to show that the Messiah was expected to be fully divine. It's clear throughout the Old Testament, and it's clear in the New Testament. So last time we covered the first part of the deity of Christ in the New Testament, we looked at his names the names attributed to Jesus are names that indicate his deity, names like Lagos in the beginning was the word that 's the Greek word Lagos, and the word was with God, and the Word was God, so the Lagos is said to be equal with God. He is called the begotten one, which means the uniquely uh, which means the unique Son of God, from the Greek word monogonase, used in passages like john one fourteen John one eighteen John 3.16, 3.18, Hebrews 11.17, 1 John 4:4,9, John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So John refers to the Logos who was incarnate as begotten God. So later on in the, in the creeds, they picked up this term begotten to describe the relationship to, to, of the son to the father. He was begotten, not made. He was begotten, not created. He was begotten, not born. So problem we have, we think of this word and we often include these birth concepts. But they made that clear in the creeds that begotten just explains the eternal relationship of the second person to the first person of the Trinity, and he was eternally uh, begotten. He's called the firstborn. The Greek there was prototakos, prototakos, and that's applied to Jesus in five different passages. And prototakos doesn't mean firstborn in terms of chronology, but firstborn in terms of rank. Here it is up on the overhead. Uh, proto. Pakas. P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And it means first in rank or privilege. First in rank or privilege. And we saw last time that background is in the Hebrew that the uh, older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. I went through numerous examples of Ishmael serving Isaac, the older serving the younger, Esau serving Jacob, Reuben serving Joseph, Manasseh serving Ephraim, Aaron serving Moses, the Gentiles serving Israel, Adonijah serving Solomon. And when the younger is elevated above the uh, older, then he is still called the firstborn, first in rank. Jesus is also called the Lord or kurios. Kurios was a term that was used in polite conversation for a master in a master-slave relationship, or sometimes it was used in a manner that was equivalent to our use of sir as a polite address to uh, someone worthy of respect. But in many passages, in many places, it was a reference to deity. So when the Scripture says Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is Divine, He is God, and He is attributed with the title Theos, God, in a number of other passages, such as John one one and eighteen, and especially Titus two thirteen, where He is referred to as our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I went through the attributes of deity which were demonstrated by Jesus. We saw that He is eternal. He is said to be without beginning or end. He is immutable. Jesus Christ never changes, Hebrews 13, 8. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is self-existent. That is, he is not dependent on anyone else for his existence, but has life in himself. That was the fourth point. Life is in himself. So these two points are supported by John 1, 4, John five twenty six, John 14, 6, and Acts three fifteen. Fifth, the Scripture says the fullness of Godhead of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily, Colossians two nine. Sixth, He is given the attribute of holiness, Hebrews seven twenty six. Seven, He was given the attribute of sovereignty, Matthew twenty eight eighteen. All authority has been given to Him. Eighth, He is omnipotent. That means He has all power, John ten eighteen, First Corinthians fifteen twenty five and twenty eight, Philippians three twenty one. Uh, Revelation 1, 8 are just some of the passages I used. Ninth, he is omniscient. Jim, Jesus demonstrated his omniscience in John 1.48 and John 2.25. He knows all things, and he is omnipresent. He is, even though in his physical human body he was limited in space and time, in his deity he is and always was omnipresent. According to Matthew 18.20, Lo, I am with you Always. So that's Matthew twenty eight twenty. I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The only way Jesus can be with every believer is if he is omnipresent. So Jesus is clearly divine by the attributes. Now Jesus demonstrates his deity also by the works. Jesus performed the works of deity, works which only deity can perform. So let's go through some of the works of Jesus which demonstrate his deity, I have six that we will go through. First creation, only God can create, man cannot create, only God can create. I love that old joke that I've used before, but I still love it, about some scientists who finally got so proud of himself because they've been able to create their own DNA chain and been able to create their own protein chains, uh, amino acid chain and so they decided to challenge God. God, we don't need you anymore. We can create create life on our own. And so so uh God said, Well, why don't we have a little contest? We'll see if you can do it, uh and I'm gonna be uh gracious enough to let you try first. So you give it your best shot. So the scientist thought about it for a little while. He said, Okay, I'll take up the challenge and he bent over to pick up some uh some soil, some dirt from the ground, and God said, No, 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 no. Make your own soil. Only God can create. Only God creates from nothing. This is the impact of Genesis 1 1. There was nothing. There was no matter. There was no energy. There was no time. There was no space. And out of nothing, out of a vacuum, out of absolute nothing, God created everything that is. God created life. And this work of creation is attributed to Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at a couple of passages. Look at a couple of passages. First of all, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, that's a pretty expansive statement there. You know, it's one thing to say that um, all doesn't always mean all, and that's true. All doesn't always mean all. In the Gospels, it says that all of Judea went out to hear John the Baptist. Well, there were probably two or three million people who lived in Judea, and I would suspect that large crowds went out to hear John the Baptist, but I would find it hard to believe that every single resident of Judea made it down to the Jordan to hear John the Baptist. And all doesn't always mean all. We know that. You know that. Your kids come home and say, well, Mom, everybody's doing it. Well, you know everybody doesn't mean everybody, but we use it that way. But in this passage, John makes it clear It's unambiguous. All things were made through him. Okay, all things there could mean most things. But then he says, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, you can't get away from that double universal. All things were made by him. Nothing was made apart from him. So Jesus is the one who created everything. He is the on-site contractor. He is the building contractor. Uh, supervisor who carried out all of the work of, of constructing the universe. This is reiterated, or his role in creation is reiterated in Colossians chapter 1, 16, and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, lest we want to try to parse all things into some things. Paul goes on to say visible and invisible. "...whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist." So not only is he given the uh, uh, attribution of creation, but also he is the one who sustains everything. There will be no global warming that destroys the earth. Jesus Christ is in control." Man cannot do anything. He may muck up the environment and has in the past and will in the future, but Jesus Christ controls history and he controls uh, the environment and man will not destroy himself through environmental disaster. We always have to remember the greatest environmental disaster occurred was the result of man's own failure in the garden and man won't do anything, can't do anything to top that. Colossians 1.16, also John uh, 1.10 states he was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ performs the work of creation. It is the work of deity. He preserves all things. That's the second attribute of deity Colossians 1:17 Hebrews 1:3 which I just read so he is the, he performs the work of creation and the work of preservation third act of deity that indicates that Jesus is God is he forgives sin it's not like the priest you went to in confessional when you were a Roman Catholic who is an intermediary who is forgiving you uh as an intermediary Jesus Christ directly and specifically forgave sins, acting as if he was God and he was the one who was doing the forgiveness. Uh, Matthew 9, 2. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Again, he says the same thing in Luke 5, Uh, 24, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. The point there is that he is demonstrating in a physical way by healing the paralytic that what he says spiritually has authority and reality. What is easier for us to do, to just simply say your sins are forgiven or to cause someone who has been paralyzed uh, their whole life co- and, and, and caused them to be able to walk again. So he said, your sins are forgiven. He does this again in Luke 47 to 48. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. He announces divine uh, forgiveness so that leads us to point 4 the fourth act that reveals his deity he only he does things that demonstrate he is god he sends the holy spirit he claimed that he had the authority to send the holy spirit to claim that authority means he had to have authority over the holy spirit john 15:26 only deity could have authority over the holy spirit john 15:26 jesus said when the helper comes When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, and he will testify of me. And I believe Jesus makes the same statement in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, that is, in the ascension, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Two key passages that the Holy Spirit is sent by not just the Father, but by the Son. That's an important point. That was argued over theologically by the Eastern Church versus the Western Church and was one of the main causes of the division between the Western Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It was in the at the Senate of Toledo, that the Western Church modified the Council of Chalcedon, which simply stated that the Father will send the Spirit, and they added a little two-word phrase in the Latin, phili- or one-word phrase in the Latin, filioque, which meant and the Son, and the Eastern Orthodox crowd did not like that for two reasons. They changed a creed, which they thought was imp- you couldn't do, and they didn't agree with the fact that the Son also sent the Spirit. And that had phenomenal implications, which we'll get into when we study the uh, Chalcedonian Creed. How you view God and authority in the Godhead changes how you view authority in life. And if you have a screwed-up view of ultimate authority in the Godhead, it will affect all your social relationships. And so when the Eastern Orthodox Church fouled up the structure of authority in the Trinity, it set the stage for a society that would have perennial problems with authority in both marriage and the state. And this is one of the reasons that Eastern, Eastern Orthodox countries, such as Greece, Turkey, Syria, Russia, will never have a proper understanding of authority in their culture because it's based on this distorted view of authority uh, in the Godhead. But that's another story. The point here is simply Jesus shows he's God by having authority over the Spirit. Fifth, he demonstrates his deity by raising the dead. Jesus raised the dead in John 6, verse 40. He raised the dead in John six forty. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in that day. Jesus claimed to be the one who was in control of resurrection. He reiterates this in John chapter 11, verse 25. When he talks to Martha at the time that Lazarus is still dead and in the grave, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And to prove the point... He then called for Lazarus to come forth from the grave. So Jesus raised the dead in John 6:40 uh, and John chapter 11, uh, act of deity. Sixth point: He is the one who executes judgment. He is the one who executes judgment. He acts as the supreme judge of the universe, the one who will bring about final judgment. And this is emphasized in a number of passages, such as Matthew 25:31 to 46, Acts 17. 31 and 2 Timothy 4:1. Let me give those to you again. Matthew 25:31 to 46. Acts 17:31, 2 Timothy 4:1. John 5:22 and 23. Jesus said, "For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him." For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That comes from Daniel 7. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. So those are seven or six different acts which of, of Jesus, which demonstrate his deity. He performs the acts of only God. The fourth area of evidence of Jesus' deity is that he accepts worship. Throughout the scriptures, there are a couple of occasions where angels are attempted to be worshipped, and they tell the human being, don't worship me. But Jesus does not try to stop worship. He is worshipped uh, in several th- Instances in Scripture: Matthew fourteen thirty-three, John nine thirty-eight, John twenty twenty-eight, Philippians two ten talks about the future worship of the Lord, and Hebrews one six. If he isn't God, then he would have he would have been a blasphemer for letting people worship him, and the writers of the New Testament who were monotheists would have been, of course, extremely confused by attributing worship to Jesus. So. Our fourth area of evidence that Jesus is, is, is God is that he accepted worship directed to himself. Our fifth line of evidence that Jesus is divine and that he has full deity is that he personally said that he could give eternal life. He said that the Father had given him eternal life, and he gives it, John 5, uh, 28 to 29. The Father had life in himself, given it to the Son. The Son gave it a, also, John five twenty-eight to twenty-nine, John six thirty-nine to forty, John seventeen two and Philippians three twenty-eight. Jesus has the ability to give eternal life. Our sixth line of evidence is that Jesus associates himself equally with the other members of the Trinity. He associates himself as equal to the other members. Of the Trinity he says he is one with God the Father John ten thirty and john fourteen twenty three John ten thirty he says, "I and the Father are one. See this is clear that again and again and again Jesus demonstrates and claims to be God either and I always like to go to the Lord liar lunatic argument either he's telling the truth in which case he is God. Or he's lying. If he's lying, he's deceiving everybody. He's either doing it intentionally or he's doing it because he's self-deceived. If he's doing it intentionally, he's a liar. If he's doing it because he's self-deceived, then he's a lunatic. He belongs, uh, down the street here at the old, uh, funny farm down here in, uh, in, in Preston. He would have been, he's just, he would be nuts, insane. Well, those aren't politically correct terms, so maybe I'll rebound later. Okay, divine claims. He made claims of deity. He associated himself with the Father in John ten thirty. Or oh, one other point, he associated himself with the Holy Spirit as well. Matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty. He told the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, he ident- identifies himself as equal to not only the Father, but the Holy Spirit, and then he also made various divine claims, claims that indicated that he was God. For example, he claimed that to know him was the same as knowing God, John eight nineteen. This is one of the most important things to realize in the deity of Christ. If he isn't who he said he was, if he isn't God, then we don't know God. That's the point. He came to reveal God, and if he isn't God, then all we know is a creature. We still don't have a, any an understanding of who God is or what he's like. So Jesus claimed that to know him was to know God, John 8:19 and John 14:7. He also said to see him was to see God, John 12:45 and John 14:9. If you've seen him, Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Third, Jesus said that to receive Christ meant to receive the Father, Mark 9:37. So he constantly is equating himself with the Father. In John 5.23, to honor Christ is the same as honoring God. Once again, he's making this point that he is equivalent, he is equal to God. And then he said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. That's the first point under divine claims. He claimed that... Knowing him, having a relationship with him, honoring him was the same as honoring the Father. They were identical. A second claim, point number two under divine claims, a second claim to divinity or to deity was that Jesus um, claimed that when he was the object of faith, uh, he was the basis for salvation, that when he claimed to be the object of saving faith, he was the one who, who was the Savior and he was therefore God. Third claim, third point Jesus made was that he had absolute dominion and authority over his followers. That is something that only applies to God. So when Jesus claimed to have all power, he was claiming deity, Matthew 10, 37 to 39. And then fourth, he claimed to have sovereignty over, over lo- the laws and institutions of God. He acted as if he could control them himself. He claimed sovereignty over the temple of God, Matthew 12:6, John 1. When he threw out the money changers, he claimed lordship over the Sabbath in Matthew 12:8, which was instituted by God. He claimed sovereignty over the kingdom of God in Matthew 16:19, and he claimed sovereignty over God's covenants in Matthew 26:28. So he claimed sovereignty over the temple, over the Sabbath over the kingdom of God, and over the covenants of God. So by claiming sovereignty in those areas, he is claiming to be God. And the point of all of this is that deity isn't something added by the early church. The deity of Jesus Christ was foretold in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled through the virgin birth, demonstrated through the titles given to Jesus, demonstrated through the character qualities attributed to Jesus, demonstrated in the acts he performed and the acts that were attributed to him, uh, demonstrated in his sayings and his personal claims, demonstrated by his associations with the Trinity, and by the fact that he accepted worship. All of these things together give us a clear picture that the New Testament consistently from Matthew to Revelation gives a picture of Jesus Christ as being undiminished deity. Now, next time we'll come back and look at the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, the clarity of your revelation, that Jesus Christ is indeed the eternal second person of the Trinity, and thus able to become incarnate, to go to the cross, and die for our sins. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you sit, right now, you can determine your eternal destiny. You don't need to uh, walk an aisle, raise your hand. You don't need to bargain with God, clean up your life, reform your life, repent of your sins. All you have to do is change your mind about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He claimed exclusivity in terms of salvation. How do you gain that salvation? Simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, our understanding of your word, prepare us that we may be able to adequately, correctly, sufficiently give an answer for the hope that is in us when we are uh, given opportunities to witness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.